Today I welcome Peter Eustace, Head of School at Kentucky Country Day School in the USA. In this episode, I discuss acts of service in schools, educational values as a framework for modern teaching, educating for the challenges of the future, and also the importance of diversity within schools. I want to talk about Kentucky Country Day School because you recognise the importance of service in the community. Why is it so important that students learn to get involved in service? As one of the many things that we try to impart on the kids here, Simon, what we want to do is help them learn that they're part of a much bigger community beyond just themselves. And I think one of the best ways to do that is to get them out into the community helping others. We have certainly formal ties and partnerships with organizations locally where our kids will, will actually go do firsthand service. So they'll be there volunteering, for instance, whether it be at a soup kitchen or some other entity in town. But we also do a lot of small fundraisers on campus to help with community members. The other thing that uh, being as involved in service as our kids end up being is I hope it's also helping them understand that as an entire community, it's not only good to position yourself as somebody who's giving help, but it's also creating an environment where I hope they're willing to ask for help. That's an understated and sometimes overlooked aspect of service, but I hope it's just encouraging our kids to know that, that there are plenty of avenues, whether it be an individual or an organization, that are there to help them as well. Because I think too often, especially at an independent school like ours, the assumption is that these kids have it all. And while we're very fortunate in many ways, we all have to learn how to ask for help sometimes. Yeah, and the thing with service is, you know, particularly with this Generation Alpha, you know, they are very self-obsessed. They are stuck with technology. It's all about them. Is it harder now to instill the value of service and get kids off it? Or is it as easy as it was 10 years ago? I don't know that it's easier or more difficult, but I think it's different. And what I mean by that is, you know, I would argue while that self-absorbed nature of students is, is alive and well, certainly in this generation, I think they're in some ways better networkers than you and I were when we were growing up because their network extends worldwide. Now, you know, my network when I grew up were the kids that I could ride bikes to. You know, if I could ride a bike to their house, they were part of my network. That's different now where our kids just have this, this global sense of what's happening around them. And I think that comes in play with service too. I mean, kids are, are constantly coming to us. Now, you know, service is, is one of those true pillars for us here at KCD, and it has been for years. It's part of our culture. But with that knowledge, our kids come to us all the time with ideas to get involved with organizations, some of which, you know, are drilling wells in Africa or are running um, hurricane relief in somewhere maybe down in the Caribbean. So these are opportunities that, frankly, when I was growing up, I wouldn't have even known existed. So I don't think it's more difficult or easier. I just think it looks different. And what looks different is the scope of the world of the environment that these kids now operate in. And it's so much bigger than it was when, when we were growing up. Yeah. And so do you look at service more globally now? Because service is more kind of intrinsically connected to local community, the people I can ride to, the people I can drive to and see, because our kids are more connected and they actually see the world that they can influence, has the service offering grown to meet the demands of the global society? It is. That's a transition that, that we're currently seeing amongst our kids here, not just at KCD, but, but in the independent school world. And a couple of the examples I would cite are the fact that we do multiple trips. Like we, unfortunately, during the pandemic, we haven't done this clearly, but typically 
we will make a trip to Haiti every year with students and faculty. And part of that uh, motivation, part of that trip is service with an organization in Haiti. So there's a global awareness attached to our service programming. But we want to be very careful to make sure that it's balanced. We do want to make sure that we're reaching out to our own community. And by that, I mean even on campus. You know, we talk about serving each other on our campus. We've got older students that are reading buddies with some of the younger students or helping some of the younger students with their math homework or other acts of service right here on our own campus. So in my mind, the most effective service program is going to be balanced. It's going to be local, but it's also going to have that international or that worldwide flair to it as well. Instilling service from a young age has got to be good for every young man and woman that goes through education. Have you noticed the difference or the impact it's made on their education because they've been part of a service-oriented school? You know, it's hard to compare and contrast outside of our own school necessarily. Um, And I think in the public school system, maybe the service component is a little tougher to structure. So it probably isn't happening quite as much, but certainly within the independent school network and environment. I can say that I think that component, that stewardship that our students graduate with here at KCD plays a part in helping them be leaders when they leave our campus. And that's really our goal. You know, if I think about the fact that we want our students, we want our graduates to be leaders in this incredible world that we're all part of. So our job is to arm them with all the tools they're going to need and all the exposure they need to understand how to be a leader. And I think service is just one component of that piece. Should service form a part of every school's curriculum, extracurriculum, and just part of their educational outlook? I suppose, I mean, in a perfect world, that would certainly be the case. You know, as I referenced a moment ago, I think with the challenges that the public school system has to deliver the content in a very different environment than we have here at independent schools, I'm not sure how feasible, frankly, that is, but I can certainly say amongst the good independent schools that I'm aware of, certainly KCD being a part of that mix, it always has been, to my knowledge, part of the tenant here and part of the education. So yes, I mean, I would argue that nothing, nothing bad can come from helping students understand their world better, understanding how to lend a helping hand, and as I said earlier, understanding how to ask for help too. So yes, I, I wish it was, frankly, even a bigger part of the environment we have. We are constantly balancing all of the goals that we have here on campus, academically, athletically, artistically, from a service perspective. It's all a big balancing game at the end of the day. So I would love it to be a bigger part of the pie, even here at KCD, but there's an opportunity cost associated with that most likely. And therefore you'd have to ask yourself, what's going to go? What are you going to give up in order to do more of it? So I know that's a challenge all schools face, certainly. It's always challenging the amount of hours you've got in every single day and what you can put on to have a full, rich curriculum that's diverse, challenging, interesting, academic, and all those things. But what I do see with particularly with American schools, American independent schools, is that I think you, you do lead the world when it comes to service. I see no other schools when I visited, when I speak to, that really put an emphasis on service. And I've taken that away. And actually, when I look at what's going on in the UK, and in other countries around the world, I don't think enough actually is put onto service. And it's, it's us looking outside of ourselves, locally, internationally, but even just within your community, just to make a difference. Because, yeah, I'm trying to instill that in my own children. So I think you're doing a great job. I hope KCD is, is a light for other schools to follow. But keep pushing service. I think it's a great thing. We obviously have a mission statement under which we operate. But our motto here at KCD is citizen, scholar, steward. And when I think about those three terms, the steward and the citizen portion directly tie back 
to service and being a greater part of our school community, our greater community here in Louisville. So I don't think that's going to go anywhere here at KCD. Certainly a personal standpoint, my philosophy will, will champion the service aspect of what we're doing, but I don't, think, I don't think it's going to go anywhere regardless of who happens to be sitting in this seat. One thing about the future school, we need to be preparing students for a fast-paced, dynamic world. What are some of the challenges the next generation of adults are going to be facing that maybe we've not seen before? Oh my gosh, there's such a list there, I think, Simon. I know when we get together administratively and talk about that very fact, it's, it's multifaceted, of course, but I think we talk a lot and, and mainly we focus on the fact that we need to, as I said earlier, we need to arm students. We need to arm our graduates whom we hope are going to be the leaders within our community and beyond. We need to arm them with the skills that they are going to need to be competitive in a marketplace that they may not even understand exists today. And what I mean by that is, and I haven't looked at this in some years now, but it wasn't that long ago that the Department of Labor here in the United States claimed that, I can't remember, don't quote me on this, but I think it was five out of the top eight earning jobs that they expected 10 years down the road didn't even exist at the time of the writing of the article. So the point is, getting kids ready to be a lawyer or a doctor or anything else is, is still fine. Teaching them the skills they need to be uh, effective in known entities, no problem. We can still do that. But we also have to arm them with the skills and the abilities to do jobs that we can't even imagine exist at this point. So what it really means academically is that there has been a shift, and, and I would say an ongoing shift, not necessarily away from content, but adding the skill development to what used to be a content delivery dominated education system. So it's no longer just about having information, but what are you going to do with it? Um, we need to be teaching these kids critical thinking skills. We need to be able to teach them to be effective communicators, written, verbal, and otherwise. So it's that set of skills that they're going to need. And one of the most important things, and this gets specific to your question, I think, kids need to understand how to synthesize, how to seek out and how to decipher an incredible amount of information that's coming at them more quickly than you and I could, can even comprehend. They have access to so much more information, some of it really good, some of it not so good. And that's one of the tasks. I mean, when we were growing up, I mean, I was taught how to use an encyclopedia and I was taught how to use a dictionary and how to use some of the basics. But now kids have arguably too much access to information. And we need to teach them how to synthesize. We need to teach them how to decipher between what's true and what's not, how to get to your sources. What's a firsthand source versus something that maybe a Twitter troll has out there that just has no basis to it. So that I would argue is one of the biggest skills we need to teach kids. Information literacy maybe is the, is the right umbrella to put that under. Yeah, and I think there is a, a global body that actually recognized this called Digital IQ. And there are online tests and things you can do to see how digitally literate you are. But coming back to your points around, around those skills, it has to be skills-based. You talk about critical thinking, problem-solving, creativity. These are three areas that the World Economic Forum listed that employers want from these young men and women who go out into the workplace. And so education has to naturally adapt. Otherwise, we're in a conveyor belt or cookie-cutter education to this off-the-peg life. And we might need some lawyers, but we don't need lawyers. The, the robots will take them because it's, it's crunching numbers and, and it's precedent. So you've got to get a go on to argue. The fact is, yeah, those jobs, have, you know, old jobs have been displaced and created new jobs. The other thing about content and teaching our kids how to access and mine or synthesize is that we're in this period of content shock. 
the amount of content that's produced or published or shared or um, recorded is completely overtaking the rate in which we can humanly consume. I think I worked out um, with some research on one of my keynotes I did a couple of years ago. The amount of content our kids get access to every 60 seconds is more than the average 17th century person could consume in a lifetime. And it kind of begs the question, you know, what do you trust? So how do we go about teaching kids how to trust, how to search? Because another quote I had, I was lucky to speak um, alongside a Harvard professor, and he said like 90% of people don't know how to Google. And I use that every single time I speak in front of schools. And I challenge teachers to go, how many times have you ever done an advanced search? Have you, have you ever looked beyond the first page of Google? And 99% of them haven't. And I kind of begs the question, you're meant to be teaching my kids. You know, we haven't taught ourselves a basic piece. So are we the best role models? You have essentially answered the question the way I would have, Simon. We need to start with the faculty. We need to start with the adults involved. We do a great deal of our professional development focused on just that. How do you be a good role model? If we're going to hold standards in place for our students, which we certainly do. I mean, we, I think, uh, arguably the top academic school here in Kentucky. So we obviously have some standards in place for the students. We better be modeling that very well as the adults on our campus as well. So I think it starts with professional development for your faculty. And then it's one thing to, to show a group of adults, you know, for instance, as you referenced, how to do an advanced search in Google, how to look beyond the ads, because that's, that's what the first search responses are going to be, are they virtually all paid ads. So how do you get beyond that? How do you dig deeper? So it's one thing to teach the adults how to do that, and then teaching the adults how to teach that to the students. And that can be a whole different skill set. This is what I find working with faculty in this specific realm more than anything else. Faculty are afraid to make a mistake. Faculty are afraid to allow things to get messy for a little bit. And you really have to get over that. You, you, you know, faculty too often, and I'm speaking about myself, I, I certainly was in the classroom as well. And when I was, I was, I was very risk averse. But you have to be okay with the messiness. You have to be willing to put it all out on the table and sift through it and talk about the good, talk about the bad, talk about why the bad is the bad. But if you pretend it's not there or you don't know it's there, the kids are going to find it. And if they find it without the context that you're able to provide for them in the, in the realm of what you're teaching, then the same lessons won't get taught. I hope you're enjoying the Inspiring Schools podcast. We're always on the hunt for guests with vision and a desire to share them. If you'd like to be involved or know of someone with great ideas at a school near you, please drop me an email to podcast at interactiveschools.com and my team will be in touch. Investing more time in teacher professional development is massively important. I think more and more time needs to be spent because the distance between what our kids know technologically, what they have access to, what they believe society should be, I think is a, is a world away from what we as adults, because we have become kind of doctrined into scheduled routine, what's comfortable to me, and everything that they're doing is scary and wrong, and surely it's bad, right? A great example. I just, I just came across this the other day, and I hadn't really thought about it this way, but it speaks to your point. I'm so used to it. I don't know how you operate, but I'm, even though I use my Google Docs all the time, I still have everything organized in files. So I have a file structure in mind. So if I'm looking for a document, I think about the parent file that it's in, the, the subfolder it might be in, and that's how I go find it. That's not how our digital native students today operate. They just dump everything into a bucket and do a word search. So when you start talking about how to organize your work with a group of 15-year-olds, they have no concept of a file tree, for instance. They have no idea what that is. Taxonomy. I talk about taxonomy all the time. I love taxonomy. 
how do we relate content? How can I pull these things together and find it in a suitable way? But they don't because guess what they're doing? They're relying on AI because AI has just become more and more intelligent in their hands without them knowing just because of a software update. And suddenly it's gone and interpreted all my things and gone, by the way, you've mentioned kind of the war in all of these documents. I'm going to put these into your history folder um, because guess what? The robot knows more than me. And are we succumbing to laziness? Is that also a worry? Oh, laziness. I, I don't see it that way. I really don't. I see it as a different way of operating. I think the students that we work with every day are just as busy, whether that's from a, a mental standpoint, you know, the, the synapses are still firing just as often as they always were. I don't see it as laziness. I really don't. I just see it as a different mode of operation that's really hard for you and for me from a different generation to fully understand. Now, you know, I, I think laziness still exists. I think there were there were lazy people when I was growing up, there were lazy people before that, and there will be lazy people going forward. And maybe we're just a little more aware of those lazy students, those lazy people, because they're kind of, they're able to broadcast their laziness in some ways, whether that be behind a video console or on social media, whatever it may be. So we're probably more aware of it. I don't think if you looked at it as a per capita basis of students in the United States, I don't think there's an increased level of laziness. I just think there's a, a completely different mode of operation both in school and out of school for this generation that at times I'll be the first to admit, I don't understand. Yeah, exactly. You got to move from your, your Snapchat to your TikTok and then, and then where you're going next. I mean, it kind of got to keep up with the language, the way that they connect, how they connect, you know, is it useful? Is it relevant? How's their mental health? I mean, there's so much that we just don't know, but they are more socially connected than any generation. And I think it's wonderful, but at the same time, keeping you know, strong contact with so many people is an overhead. And we know what the pressures that does to you as a person. And we could talk, I think, a lot about the future school and the future of jobs and, and what's going on. And I think what you're doing when you're talking about skills and how we need to adapt the curriculum and what we're teaching kids and how they adapt is exactly what needs to be happening. You believe five values underpin the pursuit for effective 21st century education, honesty, effort, attitude, respect, and trust. How do these form part of life at Kentucky Country Day School? The acronym there, the honesty, effort, attitude, respect, and trust, the acronym is HEART. And I had a mentor of mine years ago now talk about the fact that at the heart of all good things are five principles. And that was his way of introducing this concept of honesty, effort, attitude, respect, and trust. So this is a concept, this is a philosophy that I've really introduced here within our community. So I'm in year three as head of school here at KCD. And as I mentioned, KCD for years has been a, a phenomenal school, really based on that citizen scholar steward model. The HEART acronym, the pursuit of honesty, effort, attitude, respect, and trust, is certainly not a foreign concept here within our community, but it was nicely packaged in a way that I could introduce it to this school community as an additional standard, something that we can kind of use to check ourselves as the adults on campus, quite frankly, in addition to holding the kids accountable for their behavior, for their work habits, their ethics, that sort of thing. But it also is a nice way for the community to get to know me and kind of what I stand for. So those are the real reasons I, I introduced it. And what we do is we almost use it as a, as a heart test. Like we've named one of our significant faculty awards uh, here on campus is named in honor of a colleague who passed away uh, about a year ago now. His name was Jason Bell, and it is the Jason Bell Heart Award. And it's just one more way for us to communicate that standard that's out there. We felt like Jason, in many ways, represented those five philosophies, those five principles. So we now have a major 
faculty award every year. We just gave it for the first time this past spring. I hope what it's doing is communicating to the community, not just what Peter Hustis head of school stands for, although that's part of the part of the goal, but more importantly, it's a way for us to check ourselves on campus every day. Have I, if at the end of the day, I can, I can check the boxes and say, I've been honest, I've given my max effort, brought a good attitude to the table. I've respected others and myself, and I've learned both earn and give trust. If I can accomplish those five things in the run of a day, there's not a whole lot that can go wrong. Are those things you can, you can measure? I mean, school's all about measurements and seeing real impact. Are those things you can measure with any charts and graphs, or is that just something you feel? I think it's got a lot more to do with the intuitive nature of the relationships that we have on campus. So you're right, it's tough to put a scale on any of those attributes, really. So I have always gravitated toward independent schools uh, from a professional standpoint. And now that my boys are part of this mix as well, is that relationship piece. One of the first things I talk to prospective families who may have more of a background in public school systems, or certainly employees, current employees of public schools who are looking at making coming our way as an independent school. One of the first things we always talk about is that true independence we have, which gets us away from a lot of the paperwork, gets us away from a lot of the teaching to the test, gets us away from a lot of those measurement tools because our environment allows us to build real meaningful relationships with people, which then allows us to gauge things like honesty in a very different way. So I think it would be tough to do in a different environment, but the relationships that we have, and frankly, the relationships that are absolutely necessary for us to be effective, it's within the context of those relationships that we're able to measure honesty, effort, attitude, respect, and trust. Should we be looking to create more of a model centered around values, which can be followed nationwide and potentially globally so that everyone is on the same page and putting values at the heart of an educational model? I mean, I think the easy answer would be that would be wonderful and, and uh, good luck making it happen. You know, whoever's going to make that happen, because that would be a huge challenge. Whether you think about it geographically, you think about it politically, certainly these days, it would be a big challenge. I will say this, though, independent schools in the United States, at least, account for roughly 10% of the students. So we're very much the minority. But I will say that across the country, and a lot of this has to do with our national organization, the National um, Association for Independent Schools in addition to the five regional bodies that oversee independent schools and accredit independent schools. I think there's a lot of consistency when it comes to values, when it comes to principles, when it comes to philosophies. Now, things may look a little different in Seattle, Washington than they do in Portland, Maine, and that's okay. But I think there's a lot of consistency within the world of independent schools. I can only imagine, I'm not claiming to be an expert within the public school system, which again is going to account for roughly 90% of our students in this country, but I've got to think the political nature of the structure of school boards, whether that be at the county level or the state level, is going to make that task a lot more complicated, a lot more challenging. But certainly within independent schools, I think there are a fair amount of consistency when it comes to basic principles, basic values across our schools. It tends to be more the independent sector in all parts of the world where character and and values underpins everything about their educational model. We all know that a happy, confident child can achieve anything. You know, and it's not about pigeonholing them in doing science or doing math or doing something that maybe they don't feel that's them. Having a strong set of values, I think, is a great way. So I love the HEART acronym. And uh, yeah, I do wish you well on, on continuing to live into that. I want to talk about kind of globalization and diversity because, you know, those two things become kind of interlinked and hand in hand right now. I notice that your staff undertake diversity training, equity and inclusion training. Should all schools 
be striving to implement this? Is it mandatory yet? When I arrived here at KCD, you know, every year we're, of course, from a personnel standpoint, there's going to be some turnover. So we're always looking to recruit new folks. And, and one of my big pushes was that while we have a very diverse student body, we're very proud of the diversity that, that we can speak to within our student body here, particularly being here in Louisville, Kentucky, it's not the same. We don't have the same success, I should say, with our faculty. So there's room for us to grow, certainly with our diversity. So one of the first things that I wanted to do was to reach out into every nook and cranny we could, whatever network we could tap into to help us increase our diversity on campus as we add to our faculty each year. And one of the things we discovered right off the bat was that through some diversity training, the way we had our job descriptions listed were already excluding diverse members of the workforce from even applying just because of some of the language we would use or the length of the application. There were other things that we learned through some of that training. So it's not just about receiving training and understanding the importance of diversity and then adding to your diversity numbers on campus. Those are all important, certainly. But it's all the little things. It's the microaggressions that, frankly, most of us um, that come to the table with any kind of privilege don't even understand are happening. It's understanding how to make those changes in the daily life of our school that not just will increase the diversity, which again is certainly a goal, but allow it to last. You know, you can, you can, you can flash some numbers up and, and look diverse, but if you're really not an inclusive school community, it's never going to last, nor is it going to be meaningful. So that's really what we're focused on is yes, the numbers matter. Yes, we want our student body and our faculty to be quote unquote diverse, but more importantly, we want to create an inclusive community that's going to welcome more and more diversity because if we don't get these kids ready, we talked about arming them with the tools they're going to need to be leaders in this global society that they're going to be part of. Well, that global society is a whole lot more diverse than the one that you and I grew up in. So if we're not preparing them for that marketplace, for that society, by immersing them in a diverse community now, we're putting them at a disadvantage when they do leave our little nest here at KCD. So I think it's a critically important aspect of who we are as a school community. And it's going to be one of those things that with diversity, you just never check the box. We talk about that a lot here on campus. How young can you go with this kind of language and training? I don't think there's any limit to it, frankly. Now, the mode by which you do the training, the language you use, the repetitive nature of it, uh, the lessons themselves that you're teaching, all of that is going to be age appropriate, certainly. But we weave our diversity and inclusion. And, and our, the, the big word we use a lot around here from a DEI umbrella is awareness. We want to raise awareness. And we're doing that all the way down to our JK classrooms. Now, admittedly, you know, programming that our DEI director will put together for a lower school classroom is going to look very different than when he meets with a class of juniors on campus. But the lessons don't necessarily need to be very divergent from each other. It's just the mode, the language, the repetitive nature of what you're teaching. Some of this, the support that you'll use, whether it be movie clips or, um, or other sources from the media, that's going to look very different, of course, by the age program. But, but to answer your question, there is no age that's too young, in my opinion. It's part of a, an immersion into an environment that is diverse. And, and again, we try to start that uh, with our youngest learners on campus. Kentucky Country Day seems to do it all. That must require a constant balancing of resources and priorities. Has it been hard finding the elevator pitch to, to sell KCD? Indeed, indeed. I, I mentioned earlier that I'm in year three, so I'm still the new guy uh, around here at KCD. And when I arrived, now this was pre-pandemic, so the pandemic has, has kind of put a hold on some things. But when I arrived, I immediately engaged in conversations with our faculty and our alumni and all of the constituencies here 
at KCD because I genuinely had and still have a lot to learn about our school community. But the other thing I was after at the time was just that, how are we going to identify an elevator pitch? How are we going to market our school? How are we going to tell our story? Because as part of the interview process, it was shared with me that the telling of our story was a real priority for the new leadership. So I started asking all those critical questions. And admittedly, what I thought the challenge was going to be in that exercise was identifying the one or two things that really set us apart. How are we truly going to identify one or two programs, one or two aspects of our school life that we can then focus on from a marketing standpoint and becomes the epicenter, if you will, of of an elevator pitch. And I learned very quickly that that was not going to be the problem. Problem at KCD was the exact opposite. How are we going to take all that happens at this school and put it in a package that is anything close to an elevator pitch. If you think about an elevator pitch, you're, you're usually trying to get a 20, 30, maybe at most 40 second soundbite where you can at least encourage somebody to ask more questions about your product, or in this case, about our school. Narrowing everything this school does to this day, narrowing everything this school does into a 45 minute soundbite sounds like a, virtually an impossible task as far as I'm concerned. So we have embarked on the strategic planning process just this fall. We are just digging into it now. And as we come out of that, the elevator pitch will will certainly be part of it. The vision statement for our school will be part of it. But I think we're going to be best served to break each of those down, whether it's an elevator pitch, a vision statement, a strategic initiative, whatever it may be. I think we're going to be best served to break it down into several different categories. Because again, with the school of 800 kids, the amount of programming that we provide, whether it be athletically, artistically, or certainly academically, it's off the charts. There is nobody that can even come close to touching us. And the problem with that, of course, not just the elevator pitch, but as you referenced, making wise decisions about our resources is an ongoing challenge. One of the terms that I warned everybody on the front end, they would hear a lot from me and they still do is balance. It's all about finding the right balance. We can't do it all. We can't be you know, the best athletic school in the state or the best artistic or the best academic but we're going to be the best we can at all three of those, for instance, so that we can provide a full package to our prospective families. And I would argue that in those areas, we very well may be the best. Our purpose is inspiring schools to share their story. It underpins everything because, you know, as, as I travel the world and I go to see great schools, what I do know is that what you're all absolutely different. Ignore your marketing spiel because I'm afraid you all kind of say the same thing, but you're different because of you, the place, the kids, the vision the things that you do and the stories you tell. And actually, we've got to unlock it. That's what you've got to do. Because once you unlock an authentic story, you don't need to market anything because people go, well, this is the reality, you know, and you go, wow. And then you start to bring a platform together that allows everybody's voice to be heard. That in itself is really exciting. So, and that I'm sure will come out of your, your strategic vision planning. I may steal your, uh, your, your last sentence. I like that. I may, I may borrow that as we're attacking this project because I like the way you put that. You've actually got to be this master conductor of this incredible orchestra. But unfortunately, you know, you, you can't have a single person being the voice of it all. It just doesn't work. You know, the, the conductor can't play all the instruments and, and do it. And that's what schools have got this balance. And we talk about transformation where we've got to go in and we've actually got to get all the teachers the musicians playing their instruments, what they do in tune and owning their story in an effective way. And it comes back to taxonomy because again, they've got to be, we talk about hashtags and actually they've got to be using consistent hashtags that are branded towards KCD. Cause I'd love to know KCD grade nine or KCD hockey or KCD football. You then can curate that and live the story. It's been really great to chat. And I'll tell you what, you know, three years in, 
You've had two years of that, learning the ropes on the backdrop of a global pandemic. Um, hats off to you. You now can see the road ahead and uh, start to live into your vision. That's the goal. That's the hope. And I appreciate your time too, Simon. Thank you. You can connect with me on Twitter, Instagram, and via LinkedIn. Remember, keep inspiring schools. We need more future school thinking now.